Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to cover Philippians 2 a little differently this morning. Rather than covering it in order, I'm going to almost work backwards. First, we'll talk about the historical background in verses 19 to 30. Then we'll talk about the theological background in verses 5 to 11. And finally, we'll talk about the main idea and practical applications in verses 1 to 4 and 12 to 14. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, I pray for discernment by your people this morning to know whether I am interpreting this accurately, even though I'm covering it somewhat backwards. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start by reading chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out to their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Okay, Paul talks about two people in this passage, Timothy and Epaphroditus. We know about Timothy from the book of Acts. He was the son of a Greek father, but his mother and grandmother and grandmother were Christian Jews. As a young man, Paul or young man Timothy joined Paul and Silas on Paul's second missionary journey and was undoubtedly in Philippi when Paul and Silas were beaten and imprisoned there. So the Philippians knew Timothy personally. Paul tells the Philippians that among the co-workers that were with Paul in Rome, there was none quite like Timothy. He had proven himself in faithful service to the gospel and had genuine concern for the Philippians' welfare. So Paul says in verse 23, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. In other words, as soon as Paul finds out whether he will be released or executed, He'll send Timothy to them with the news. Verse 24, Paul again expresses his optimism that he will be released. And according to tradition, Paul was released, only to be rearrested and beheaded several years later. And being beheaded may be a, may be a possibility that Paul may have graphically alluded to in verse 17, when he talks about being poured out like a drink offering. The other person mentioned in this background is Epaphroditus. 
The only thing we know about Epaphroditus is from Philippians. In verse 25, we learn that Paul considered Epaphroditus a brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier in the spread of the gospel. In verse 25, we also learn that the Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus as their messenger to take care of Paul's needs while he was in prison. Later on in this letter, we will find that Epaphroditus was the one who delivered the love gift to Paul from the Philippian church. In verse 27, we learn that while Epaphroditus was in Rome, he got seriously ill and almost died. When he recovered, Epaphroditus longed to go back home, and Paul was eager to send him back. The only thing I want to point out in this background is that Paul is not a one-man show here. He's got Timothy and Epaphroditus. In other passage, or New Testament passages, we learn that he also had Luke and Silas and others. In fact, the whole Philippian church is supporting him. We often just focus on Paul because he's the one who wrote the letters. But spreading the gospel was a team effort, just like it is at our church. From the music ministry, to the Sunday school classes, to finances, to facilities, to jam, potlucks, prayer, and giving. This is a team ministry. We're all in this together. Okay, so much for historical background. This brings us up to the theological background. Let's read verses 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The main point of this passage is really pretty simple. In the context of verses 3 and 4, this passage is basically saying that you should live in humility, looking out for the needs of others, just like Jesus did when he became human, went to the cross for us. Very simple. But Paul makes that point with some very pretty complicated theology. The main complication centers around verse 7, which in the NIV, says that Jesus made himself nothing. In the original, it literally says he emptied himself. And the question is, what did he empty himself of? There's a great hymn by Charles Wesley that says, He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, and emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Wesley's idea that Jesus emptied himself of all but love comes from this passage in Philippians. But theologians point out that according to verse 6, Jesus himself was in very nature God. So if Jesus is God, how could he empty himself of all but love and still be God? In other words, how could God not be all-powerful, all-present, and all-knowing, still be God. Imagine that you get a new computer. 
You want to use it entirely offline for word processing and spreadsheets. In fact, you disconnect the internet cable and turn off your wireless access. It's not that your computer couldn't go online. That capability is still there. You could easily plug the cable back in or turn the wireless back on, but you've chosen not to. When the Greek text of Philippians 2.7 says Jesus emptied himself, I think in some mysterious way it means that on his human side, Jesus chose not to access all the power or knowledge of his divine side. Just like you might choose to temporarily unplug and work entirely offline. Although Jesus was in very nature God and never stopped being God, he chose to go through life as a human being just like us. So, for example, Jesus' human limitation is why Luke 2.52 says Jesus grew in wisdom. That's why Hebrews 5.8 says Jesus had to learn obedience through what he suffered. It's why in Matthew 24.36, Jesus says that he didn't even know the time of his return. Jesus was somehow able to live as a human being dependent completely on the Father for any supernatural knowledge he had or any miracles he did. So what? Why does this theology matter? Well, just imagine how much easier life would be if you had all knowledge, if you knew everyone's thoughts, and motives, and intentions, if you always knew if someone was lying to you or telling the truth, if you knew the results, uh, what the results would be of every decision you might ever make. Imagine, for example, that you had all powers, so you could never have to fear muggers, murderers, or rapists, because you could strike them down with just a thought. Life would be so much easier with all that power. But that was not Jesus. He chose not to have that ability. He emptied himself in the sense that he chose to live life just like you and me, with our human limitations. So he truly understands firsthand what it is to be hungry. He understands what it feels like to be mocked, to be alone, to be betrayed, to be deserted. And he certainly understood both the emotional and physical effects of pain. That's one reason we can go to him in times of distress. I like the way the New Living Translation puts Hebrews 4.15. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. But this deep theology is almost a tangent in this passage. The real point is found right at the beginning, in verses 1 to 5, and then down in 12 to 14. Let's read those verses. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 say, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Then Paul gives examples of Jesus emptying himself that we discussed. And now jump down to verses 12 to 14. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. I think the main point of this passage is in verse 2. And make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, Paul is not naive. He knows very well that human beings are just not always going to agree. But I don't think he's saying we have to agree on everything. After all, he didn't require believers to agree on the issue of meat offered to idols, for example. I think what Paul is saying that his joy would be complete if they were all in agreement on the essentials of the gospel and pulling in the same direction in love. And how do you do that? Well, Paul explains in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, when Paul says we should value others above ourselves, I don't think Paul is saying we should be a doormat. Jesus was certainly never allowed himself to be a doormat. But Paul is saying that we should be concerned about the well-being of others, sometimes putting others even above our own, our own needs. Paul is basically teaching what Jesus taught about treating others the way we would want to be treated. For example, when I was in college, Sheila got pregnant with our second child. Now, Sheila is one of a very small percentage of women who almost kind of gets allergic to her unborn babies. She goes through months of intense morning sickness that just never goes away. In fact, she had to be hospitalized for all three of our babies because she eventually got so dehydrated and malnourished from, being, from not being able to keep anything down. Well, during that time, I was in college and had a summer class, which I had to take and pass in order to keep our GI Bill coming in, which was a big part of our income. This summer class was required and involved traveling, so I would have to be away from home for several days. So what do we do? We were practically in poverty. Childcare was not an option. Well, I was working in the college library at the time. The librarian I worked for took time off to come over to stay with Sheila for several days to help take care of her and our toddler. This librarian had nothing to gain from this. We couldn't pay her, and I'm sure it was not convenient for her. She was a perfect example of not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul then says in verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, and I'm not sure Paul is talking so much about obeying him as he is about obeying Christ. You may remember that in the Gospel of John, Jesus said about five times that if we love him, we will obey his commandments. So Paul says at the end of verse 12, continue to work out your salvation. Notice that it does not say to work for your salvation, but to work out your salvation. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but... 
We all know that there is nothing we can do to earn a right relationship with God. The only way to be saved from the wrath of God, about which both Jesus and Paul speak, is to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Working out your salvation has to do with obedience to Christ that springs from our loving devotion or faith in Christ. Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling? Well, I don't think this is fear and trembling of being thrown into hell because we're not working for our salvation. But what does it mean? Why would we be in fear and trembling? Well, after I got out of the Air Force, uh, after Air Force Tech School, I was stationed at my first permanent duty station in Dover, Delaware. I was visiting with the pastor in my new church one day. Now, I was just a lowly airman, not more than a few months removed from basic training, where sergeants were yelling at every false move you made. And suddenly, someone else from my church came in the office. He was an Air Force major dressed in his flight uniform. I immediately snapped to attention. He smiled and told me I didn't have to be at attention here in church. I said, yes, sir. He said, I didn't need to call him sir here in church either. I probably said, yes, sir. <laughs> when he realized how tense I was, how much fear and trembling I had, he got up, took off his flight jacket and pulled it inside out to hide the major insignia. He then put it back on inside out and said, when we're here in church, we're not officer and enlisted. We're just brothers in Christ. That was over 40 years ago, but I never forgot it. First, because of his humility, which is exactly what Paul is teaching in this passage. But also for the fact that for me as a brand new airman, to be there in the presence of a major who was over 10 ranks above me was a matter of fear and trembling. And I wasn't even in trouble. When Paul says to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, I wonder if the idea is that someday we will stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, creator of the universe, to give account of ourselves. We better take that seriously. Paul goes on to describe the exalted nature of Jesus in verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. If I, as a brand new airman, would be in fear and trembling in the presence of an Air Force major, how do you think we might feel standing in the presence of the unfathomably powerful and awesome creator of heaven and earth? You say, yeah, but Jesus died for us. Why would we be in fear and trembling before him? Paul says, every knee shall bow. Remember in Revelation 1.17 when John met the risen Jesus? He didn't run up and give Jesus a big hug. He fell at Jesus' feet as though dead. I sometimes think many churches focus so much on God's love and grace that we've lost a sense of God's unfathomable power and awesome holiness. We have no fear of God anymore. Finally, in verses 14 to 18, Paul tells the Philippians to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, how many here never grumble or argue? Don't answer that. 
I suspect we all grumble or argue from time to time. There are some people, but there are some people, however, who just love to argue. They love to be contentious. They seem to thrive on it. Others seem to be in a perpetual state of grumbling about everything. Christians should not be perpetual arguers or complainers or grumblers. I know some, on the other hand, who never seem to grumble about anything. They always seem cheerful. Some never even seem to have a bad day. Well, I'm not one of them. But they stand out from everyone else. They are noticeable by their positive attitude. I think that's what Paul is talking about when he says at the end of verse 15, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And that should be our goal, that people could just tell by our lives that we follow Christ. So I think I can summarize the main idea of this chapter in one paragraph. It goes like this. Hey, Philippians, if you want to make my joy complete, be united, pulling together in the same loving spirit without arguing or grumbling all the time, doing nothing out of conceit or self-interest. Instead, live in humility, looking out for the needs of others, just like Jesus did when he became human and went to the cross for us. In fact, I think I can summarize the main idea of this chapter in one sentence. Don't grumble, be humble, and look out for the needs of others, just like Jesus did for us. Let's pray. God, forgive us of our grumbling and complaining. Instead, give us the desire and empower us by your spirit to do everything without grumbling and complaining and to be humble and to look out for the interests and needs of others. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.